Please turn to Second Peter chapter 2. Let me go through a quick review so far. Peter draws the first chapter of Second Peter to a close, explaining with, with what I consider some force behind it, that Scripture is indeed breathed out by God, not by the will of man, not by the will of its writers, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, who the last couple verses of the first chapter say carried along the men who wrote it down. It's like boating terms, carried it along. Okay, These are not the mere words of men, Peter says. These are the words of God. And he grounds the validity and truthfulness of Scripture on what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. You guys remember that? We talked about that last week. When Moses, in Exodus chapter 33 and 34, when Moses in the Old Testament sees the glory of God, even though he's tucked away in the, in the cleft of the rock and God passes by, when Moses saw even that little sliver of God's glory, it changed him dramatically and he reflected God's glory for a time through his physical face. But what Peter and James and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration was Jesus and they saw the glory of God coming out of Jesus. It wasn't reflected. It was coming out of him. And that's a big difference. And so what they saw on that mountain was just a little glimpse of what Jesus was going to look like when he came back in all of his glory. Just a little bit. And it confirmed what all of the prophets had been saying throughout the whole Old Testament. They were guys who were holding up boards and saying, this is what the Messiah is going to look like. And what Peter, James, and John saw confirmed it. And then Peter says in verse 19 of chapter 1, he says that that is like a lamp shining in a dark place. And he says, you do well to pay attention to it. So if the Holy Spirit, through a, a writer of Scripture, tells us that we would do well to listen to something, you'd do well to listen to it, right, brothers and sisters? Okay? So the end of the chapter... Uh, confirms that no prophecy, no truth of Scripture ever comes from somebody's personal opinion. Verse 21 of the first chapter says that the words of Scripture were given by God to carry his ideas to mankind. They weren't man's ideas about God. They were God's ideas about himself given to men to relate to the rest of us. These are God's words. So he is, Peter is with some force, emphasizing the authority of Scripture in chapter 1, okay? And so I, I think it's good for us to go through a review like this because the first few verses of chapter 2 start with the same kind of theme of the truthfulness of Scripture. And almost the whole second chapter, it just hits us with punch after punch of how people mishandle, twist, and undervalue what God says. And so Peter's writing to us, his, his listeners, his readers, wanting us to understand that what he's saying and what Scripture is, is in fact from God and not from him, not from them. He points back to eyewitnesses and all of those things that were carried along. In contrast is what we see at the beginning of chapter 2. So the prophets, other apostles, guys like Peter are writing these words, carried along by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but the contrast is what we see in the first, really in all of chapter 2. We're going to focus on verses 1 through kind of the middle of verse 10 today. 
So read these verses with me. Second Peter chapter two, verses one through 10. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you and will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Would you pray with me again? God, we need your help in this. Uh, what Jason shared with the kids is true. We, we want, even those of us with the Spirit of God, we read something that goes against our flesh, and we want to find a way to wiggle out of it. And so the unbelieving world at large who has no care for the things of God, they don't try to wiggle out of it. They just ignore it, pretend that it doesn't exist. We can't do that, Lord. Those with your spirit can't. And so I pray, God, I don't know who's listening, uh, what their situations in life are, but Lord, if, if there are some who have been doing that, who are trying to wiggle out of what they know to be true because they don't like it, because it's too hard, Lord, I pray that you would grant them repentance and that they would turn back to you by faith today. Lord, teach us what you want us to know from your word. It is truth and it matters. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. That, that phrase I just said is what I want us to kind of think through for a moment. Before we really get into digging into the text, this idea of truth, that truth matters. It's important, and I hesitate, but it's important because of what we've been told what we've been lied to. And we can look at the culture now and say, man, it's gotten a lot worse than when we were kids. But in reality, your parents looked at it, what it was when you were kids and they thought the same thing, right? And so there's this constant slide into lawlessness and sin that our hearts just jump right in for. So doctrine matters, Theology matters. Truth matters. When I say doctrine, I, I mean those core beliefs, those core truths, those core teachings from Scripture about, specifically about God, Jesus, mankind, and salvation. So those are kind of the, the big ones that we need to degree on if we're going to link arms together in gospel work. And so that's what I mean by, by doctrine. It seems, though, that so much of what we hear even in a lot of churches, 
just seems like the opposite of that. Like, we all saw when Jason was clutching that tiny board saying, well, I believe it's a foot long. We all saw how ridiculous that was. And yet, in practice, there are people claiming to be Christians who go around doing that constantly. Now, we shouldn't laugh, we shouldn't make fun, but we should come with sound doctrine that matters. There's a, there's a popular notion that maybe you've heard before, and it says this, doctrine divides, so let's just put that on the back burner and let's just focus on loving people, right? Now, there's some truth to that and there's some untruth to that. And the truth of it is, and we need to be clear on this, Christian, you are absolutely called to love people. There is no way around that in Scripture, in Jesus' life, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. You are absolutely called to love others. You're called to love others in ways that people without the Spirit of God can't, right? Jesus says, love your enemies. He says, even non-believers love people that love them. That's not what he's talking about. Real love is like loving those who persecute you. Caring for your enemies, giving them a cup of cold water in the name of Christ. So, Christian, you are called to love. Don't hear me wrong. Peter ends his list of Christ-like attributes back in uh, chapter 1, verse 7, with love. In fact, Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, you can do a lot of Christian-like stuff, speak in tongues of men and angels, Um, give over your body to be burned, give everything you have away. But he says, if you do it without love, you are nothing. You have gained nothing. So love is important. Don't hear me wrong. But Guys, Christians are called to love people, but not by compromising truth. Okay, and we need to understand this and be clear. A similarly misguided notion that I've heard in churches is that since doctrine creates too many arguments, Christians should put it on the back burner in order to maintain unity. Okay, so let's minimize doctrine, theology, sound teaching, for the sake of love or for the sake of unity in the church. Let me just say it again. Christian, you are called to live in unity with one another. James read that this morning. He says, if it's at all possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Okay, so we are called to unity. But listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4. He's talking about unity in the body. And he lays out a really helpful precedent. He says in verse 15 of Ephesians 4, he says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Then in verse 25 of that chapter, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So Christians are called to unity in the body, but not by compromising truth. We're called to love. And we're called to unity, but not at the expense of truth. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that you aren't truly loving your neighbor if you refuse to speak the truth to them. You're actually showing a a, a form of hatred towards them by not sharing the truth with them. And guys, we can't have biblical unity in the church if we avoid discussing sound doctrinal issues. So don't let anybody convince you to trade off sound doctrine for the sake of love or unity. I would say that they aren't mutually exclusive. 
It's not like you can only have one and not the other. They can exist. That's what Paul says, speaking the truth in love. And he says that really only grown-up, mature believers can understand this and do it. Without the truth of Scripture, love and unity are just hollow goals that do not accomplish what God intends. They're just idols for us to chase after. If we abandon the truth to get there, what have we really gained? A church that stands together on sound doctrine will do more for the kingdom of God than a church that stands on being relevant to the culture. What what you and I need is doctrinally sound teaching from God's word week to week free of heavy personal opinion. And so by the God, by the grace of God that's what us pastors of the church want to provide for you as members of the church is the word of God unashamedly preaching the word of God and the truth that we find there. Now I'm, I focus on the idea of truth and I'm I'm kind of pounding that home for a purpose, because Peter spends like a whole chapter hitting us with it. And he starts in verse 1 of chapter 2 saying that this sort of thing is nothing new. It's not a new thing. He says that false prophets arose among the people of Israel. This was before Peter's time. And Peter says that false teachers will rise up among his readers as well. And in our time, and he says that they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Now, if you think about all of the threats to God's people in the Old Testament, just go back to Old Testament stories in your minds. Who are some of the enemies of God's people? The Philistines were a big one. Um, the Amorites were another one. The Assyrians were another one. They weren't the biggest threat to God's people. You know what the biggest threat to God's people was? False prophets within their own midst. Read Jeremiah. Specifically, chapter 23. I'll quote a little bit from there in a few minutes, but Jeremiah 23. And you're going to see this played out day after day. God was giving Jeremiah words for the people. Say this to the people. Jeremiah said, I have a vision of God. Here's what he says. And day after day, they refused to listen. Kids, how many of you were at VBS this year? Raise your hand. Be proud. We talked about the four different kinds of soil, right? And at the very beginning of the parable, or actually it's at the very end of the parable, what does Jesus say? He says, For those who have ears, let them hear, right? Everybody, you know, we've pretty much, everybody's got two ears. So Jesus was saying, we need to be active listeners, not, and we talked about James, where he said, be doers of the word, not just hearers only. In Jeremiah's time, they didn't have ears to hear. They didn't want to be doers of the word. And in this, this being the case, they deceived themselves. So they didn't listen to Jeremiah because they didn't want to listen to God. They listened to who they wanted to listen to. They listened to prophets who would comfort them with lies instead of truth. Listen to Jeremiah 23, verses 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. 
They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually that to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster will come upon you. And guys, here, herein lies the danger of listening to the voice of man instead of the voice of God. We can easily be comforted into laziness when we actually need to be truly stirred up to change. Complacency is easier than repentance, isn't it? You've felt that in your own life, and you've seen it in the lives of those around you, probably those who you love. Complacency is easier than repentance, and yet one of those things is the evidence of a person still separated from God, and one of those is evidence of a person who's been changed by God. There have been hundreds and hundreds of books written about how to grow a church. As a pastor, I get those recommended to me. I was required to read through some of those kinds of books in Bible college. I'm sure Jason was in Bible college and seminary as well. Lots of books written about how to grow the church. A vast majority, I think less in more later times, but when we were in school, a vast majority of those books focused on a lot of things that have nothing to do with Scripture, if I just say so myself. They focus on things that appeal to creature comforts, your comforts. Even though not all of these things are bad or wrong, our flesh desires easy comfort over hard truths every time especially if we don't have the Spirit of God moving. But the Word of God never comforts the sinner. I want you guys to know that. The Word of God doesn't comfort the sinner. It reveals their true condition. The purpose of the law. Not to save, it can't. It's to reveal sin. This is what Scripture does. It reveals our sin. It doesn't comfort us in it. The comfort comes, it does come, but it comes when we read how our condition before God can be changed by the atoning death of Christ, by his constant intercession before the throne even now. Paul tells Timothy as a young pastor that the Israelites had another kind of problem with their ears. It wasn't that they didn't have physical ears, they didn't have ears to hear, and the ears that they did have were itching ears. Okay, you guys understand what he means when he says that. It's not that they literally were itchy. It means that they only wanted to hear what tickled their ears and made them happy. Even if they are lies. And Paul urges young Timothy, he says, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, preach it, be ready to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all patience. Why? Here's why, you guys have probably heard those verses that I just quoted. Here's why, 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. Why should Timothy preach the word, be ready to reprove, rebuke, and exhort? Because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears that they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And this is one of the primary purposes of Jason and I and Caleb and Mike as your pastors is to defend the faith and to keep you from going down that path of myths and false doctrine 
and listening to false teachers. We don't want you to be deceived because the time is coming. We might even argue it's here to some degree when people just are going to follow who they want to hear because they tickle their ears, telling them something nice. Jeremiah was preaching what God wanted him to preach. But false prophets came right behind him almost almost every time. And they would tell the people, they would say, listen, don't worry. Jeremiah is this, you know, he's this harsh guy. Have you heard his tone? It's really bad. Surely you can't listen to what he says. And they didn't listen. The people didn't listen. These false prophets came in and, and they reassured people. Did you hear the description? You can look back in Jeremiah 23. The, the people were being reassured. They were people who despised the word. They were people who stubbornly followed their own heart. And these prophets said, everything's going to be okay. It's okay. Don't listen to Jeremiah. But that wasn't God's message. That was man's message that just tickled their ears and people willingly grabbed hold of the easy and forsook the hard truth that was being shared. They ignored it. Now, Peter, back to Second Peter chapter 2, Peter calls these false teachings heresies. He calls them destructive heresies. Well, what does a heresy destroy? The truth of God. Heresies destroy the truth of Scripture. Look at verse 1 again. It tells us that this happens among God's people now, even still. And when it does, it's incredibly destructive in the life of a Christian. Who brings these heresies before God's people? He says false teachers. Teachers who deny even the master who bought them. I think here, I think Peter's talking about people who claim to be Christians, but deny even the act of the atonement itself. Because that's that that master who bought them that has the idea of atonement, of purchase, right? And that's what the blood of Christ did on the cross for all who believe. And so these people, they say that they speak on behalf of God. They say that they have this divine revelation, but there are things in their life that deny it. That you can't believe what they say because their life denies it. If they had truly been purchased by the sacrificial death of Christ... They wouldn't be lost. They wouldn't want to teach false doctrine. They wouldn't deny who Christ is and what he's done because God's people persevere. They fight temptation. They swim hard against the current. Those are analogies that we've used in the past few weeks. These false prophets, they might say that God's their master, but they deny him by their actions, by their lifestyle, by their words. John spoke of deceptive people in 1 John 2.19. He said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out so that it might become plain that they all are not of us. There's discernment, brothers and sisters, that we need to exercise. Even in our own church, even in our own Sunday school classes, small groups, Bible studies, use discernment. How does what just was just said way against the truth of scripture do that when we're preaching how does what he said weigh against scripture is it true it ought to be because if it's not you need to know and you need to tell me what does he say 
What does Peter say that happens to the person who denies the master who bought them, who denies the atoning sacrifice of Christ? Destruction. That's, that's what's waiting. So whether it's in this life or the next life, destruction comes. All the while, what are they preaching? It'll be okay. Peace. You're safe. And destruction is waiting. They bring destruction upon themselves, Peter says. I think this is true. We can, we can kind of put most every sin in this category, right? Sin brings down discipline. And if discipline is not heeded, that sin eventually will end in destruction. Parents, this is why we discipline our children. Because we love them. And we don't want them to go on thinking that bad behavior... That sinful behavior is somehow okay. And so we correct it over and over and over again. Some of you have adult children and you're still correcting sin in their life. I praise God for you. Continue sharing the word. Now, they, they're not under your authority in that sense of being in your house anymore, but they still look up to you. They still are to honor you as their mom and dad. And so you still have a voice in their life. Continue calling them back to Scripture and to the truth of God. What does verse 2 remind us of, though? Look at that with me. It says, these guys bring upon themselves swift destruction. But then at the beginning of verse 2, he says, and many will follow their sensuality. This is also true of sin oftentimes, isn't it? My sin doesn't just affect me. It affects my wife, my kids, my church body. Your sin is the same. Left unchecked, left unrepented of, it will destroy not only you, but it will destroy those around you. And you can think of examples of this, I'm sure, in your life and in family's life as well. Sin affects more than just the person who sins. These lies, these heresies that the false teachers were spinning found some itching ears. It says, many will follow. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 24, verse 11. He says, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. It's going to happen. Maybe happening now. I mean, you've seen pastors. A lot of times these are the big ones who have a, a big audience. They claim the name of Christ. They might even preach some actual truths from God's word, but they live for their own lusts and passions, and it's reflected in their lifestyle. You know, it's tempting then, and what could lead others astray is for somebody to say, well, they're, they are, they're a, a preacher, and they live that way and act that way, so maybe it's okay. And then they follow that heresy, that dishonest kind of way of living. And they're led astray. Because of them, verse 2 continues, the way of truth will be blasphemed. We understand this. If you flip back to 1 Peter chapter 4, I think Caleb shared these verses with you. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12 Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as if something strange was happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. 
Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Don't be surprised, he said, if you suffer. Don't be surprised that the way of truth is blasphemed by people who don't love the truth. Jesus Christ, the gospel, those who are following him, the way of truth will be spoken evil of. It's going to be ridiculed. It's going to be defamed even. Verse 3 tells us that these false teachers are greedy. It shows their motivation. It says that they won't hesitate to exploit people. Guys, is any of this sounding familiar to situations in our culture today? I, I shudder to think that it does, and it does. It's a condemnation on us who call ourselves, many people who call themselves Christians, yet who deny the master who bought them, and yet who blaspheme the way of truth by how they live. God says, that it, or Peter says that God says, he may tolerate it for a season, but not forever. Look at verses 4 and following. Uh, Peter, to help us understand this, Peter gives us, a few illustrations, specifically from the Old Testament, of the judgment of God against sin. S- specifically, falsehood, lies, deception. And so he lists three of them. Uh, number one in verse four is fallen angels. Number two in verse five is the ungodly ancient world, the days of Noah. And then number three is in verse six. He, he lists Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot who lived in that town. So let's just quickly work through these. Um, in verse 4, I think what Peter has in mind here is the, 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 the fall of the angels before mankind when Lucifer and his followers, what the Bible describes as a third of those angels in heaven, when they follow Lucifer in rebellion against God. What happens, we find out here in some other passages of Scripture, that they were cast out of heaven and God gave them the dwelling of hell as a penalty for their rebellion. The way that Peter puts it is he says that God did not spare them, but cast them into hell. He also says that God committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So what's, what's going on here? Well, I think what Peter is saying is that those angels who rebelled against God, who bought into lies, have a reserved seat for the final judgment. Not reserved in a good way. Reserved. They will have to face the judgment of God without a mediator. Think about that for a moment. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about Jesus, our, our intercessor, our great high priest. He has come, not for angels. He's come from, for you, for man, to redeem, to save, to purchase, to intercede for, not, not for angels. They are being kept until the just judgment of God one day. One, and that day, some will have Christ as mediator, but the angels will not. Verse 5, Peter goes on. Second example here is the ancient world. He connects it to Noah. He says, God didn't spare the world. He spared who? Noah, his wife, and then his three boys and their wives. Eight people total, God saved. Listen to how the state of mankind prior to the flood was recorded in Genesis 6-5. 
The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's a pretty definitive, specific state of mankind and what a terrible state it was. Heartbreaking announcement about how the world was. Even though, if you, how many remember how long it took Noah to build the ark? Like a hundred years. A hundred years, Noah. And Peter calls him a herald of righteousness. He's a preacher of righteousness. So not only is he building a boat in the middle of possible desert where it possibly has never even rained before. He's building a giant boat. He's not only doing that, but he's preaching to the people around him. And this is why I think in 1 Peter chapter 3, it talks about the Spirit of Christ in the days of Noah. I think that's what was happening. The Spirit of Christ was being preached by Noah as he's building this ark for a hundred years. He was a herald of righteousness, and yet mankind would not listen. What did it say? The condemnation on the earth, every intention of the thoughts of the hearts of men was only evil continually. Violence, evil, moral relativism dominated the culture and the thoughts and the hearts of humanity. In the book of Judges, it said the people did what was right in their own eyes. Multiple times it says that. And guess what happened? Judges is a cyclical book. Over and over, God provides a judge to save his people. Awesome. Glory to God. They praise him a year two years, maybe less, maybe more. And then they get deceived to believing lies and they follow false gods and then they come under captivity and they're in bondage and they need another rescuer and another judge rises up. And what happens before each time that they start buying into the lies or as they're buying into the lies, it says they did what was right in their own sight. Guys, that's our culture. That's the person that clings to the three and fifteen sixteenths board and says, I believe it's a foot long. This is right for me. So you have nothing to say. You can't correct me. It's right for me. In Matthew twenty four, verse thirty seven, Jesus says that the earth will be the same in the same state when he returns as it was in the days of Noah. I think that's what he's talking about. Be assured, the flood was not just some accident of nature. It was the judgment of God on the earth. Look back at Second Peter chapter 2. Verses 6 through 8 mention the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they mention Abraham's nephew, Lot, who lived in Sodom with his family. Years prior to this, and we won't go through the whole history, but years prior to this, Abraham and Lot decided together... Uh, our herds are big. Um, we don't want to fight, so let's let's go our separate ways. And Lot got the first pick, and he looked at Sodom, and what did he see? He saw a lush and fertile land, and he said, "I want to live there. I want to raise a family there. I want to raise my flocks there." And in reality, it was a good place to raise sheep, and a horrible place to raise a family. If you know much about Lot and his time there in Sodom. You might read these verses like I did originally, and it, it seems a little bit unusual that Peter would describe him twice as righteous. If you know anything about Lot, he does some really questionable things, like really questionable things. But I think 
Peter reveals what is the reason why he describes him as righteous. He says because he was greatly distressed and he was tormented by what was going on around him. I don't think if, if when we get to heaven and we ask Lot, I don't think he's going to be self-righteous. Like I don't think he believes he did it all right. Surely he looks back and says, by the grace of God, I was counted as righteous, just like every one of us would. But I, th- I think he was superior in the sense of the people around him and just the vast immorality that was going on because it broke his heart. It says that his soul was tormented day after day. Now, it's true that he tried to fix a problem in a really, really unwise way in the Old Testament. But the motivation for it, I think, was, or at least seems to be, right. Peter says that God used Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. That's what's coming. And he's he's talking about sexual immorality in every form there, specifically homosexuality in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, this is what's going to happen to the ungodly. Those who reject Christ as mediator. So Peter uses these examples from the ancient world, from the Old Testament, to illustrate the danger of false teachers. Because in all of those situations, people were saying, God didn't really say that. Or they're either distorting the word of God or they're not holding to it in the least bit. They've forgotten it. They don't care about it. And so Peter is using them as illustrations to warn us about the effect that lies, specifically lies about God, can have on the culture. I'll just say it like this. When truth is blurred, society suffers. R.C. Sproul says it like this, false doctrine produces ungodly living. You guys, you don't have to watch the news. Scroll through your Facebook or Twitter feed for more than a minute to see how this is real in our world. When When the lines of truth become blurred, which is an intentional thing that people are doing, society as a whole will suffer. Now, it's being praised as this awakening, but in reality, it's going to cause judgment. And that's what Peter is reminding Christians of, actual judgment, the angels who fell, the world and its sin, the days of Noah, and these wicked cities, societies, they were ended. They were placed under extreme judgment. And after all of this, I think Peter wants us to know two things. So look at verses 9 and the the first half of verse 10. Number one, something that Peter really wants us to know, if God did not spare these people, that you can see there's a lot of semicolons, there's a lot of if statements here. He's using them as examples. He says, if God did not spare those people and those angels, he won't stand for the spreading of lies from false teachers either. He's not going to stand for it. God knows what to do with the unrighteous. Of that you can be sure. And, of, and Christian, this should be a source of comfort for us, for you. You don't have to exact God's revenge on the ungodly. God knows what to do. The Lord knows what to do. His justice will always pierce 
the veil of wickedness and rebellion. No matter how thick, no matter how deep, justice will prevail. God knows what to do, as he says there in those verses, with those who indulge in the lusts of defiling passion and despise authority. Again, this is a reference to people who practice immorality, those who refuse to submit to authority, whether that's your parents, whether that's your boss, whether that's government. God knows what to do, and his judgment is sure. I quote this verse often, but Jesus is speaking right after the the famous John 3.16 verse. He's talking with Nicodemus, and he's very clear in John 3.36. He says, God's judgment is sure, and the wrath of God remains on the person who does not believe or obey the Son, Jesus. The wrath of God remains on him. They can't see it, but it hovers over them, and it will fall on them when they die without Christ. God knows what to do with the unrighteous. But here's the second thing that Peter is telling us. God knows what to do with the righteous. God knows what to do. Even though the judgment fell on the people in these examples, God knew what to do with those righteous who were with them. Noah, his family, Lot, some of his family. These guys, the world was pressing in around them. Can you imagine living in Noah's day? The intentions of every heart were only evil continually. Imagine the pressure for a hundred years of building that boat. It would have been for him to forsake this task. How often he wondered if he really heard God or not. Lot in the middle of Sodom and Gomorrah, seeing these things that were breaking his heart, that tormented his soul day after day, all the things that he heard and saw. It grieved them, but God rescued them out of these things. Not by their sinlessness, because if you go through Lot's example and Noah's example, they screwed up in some pretty big ways. It was because of God in them, rescuing them. Here's the cool part. for, For you, Christian, God knows how to rescue you out of your trials too. You don't have the world quite like Noah pressing in on you, and yet some days it feels like that. When you go to your job and every other word is a word that you don't want to hear or repeat, it's pressing in. When you go to a family function and there's arguing and fighting and disloyalty and ungodliness that's pressing in, and you might be tempted to wonder if you're really hearing the words of God and the words of truth or not. Remember, God knows how to rescue you. He's shown this most vividly because God has sent his rescuer, Jesus Christ, to seek and to save the lost. You might feel that way. You might feel lost amongst the pressures of this world. It might feel like it's closing in on you. God has sent his rescuer, Jesus, to save, to seek you, to save you. Think about that. You are being sought after by loving God. But a just God, he's speaking the truth to you through his word. He's loving and he's just and he's coming after you. And he knows how to execute perfect justice on the ungodly. But he knows how to rescue and provide perfect deliverance for those who are his. Last thing I'll say is just that it's this encouragement to you all today. Don't fall for the lies 
of those who would comfort you and tell you that everything is all right when actually you need to be stirred up to repent. And I'm saying this to myself too. Don't fall for the lies. Don't listen to the false prophets who would say, peace, peace, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Don't listen to the truth. It can be whatever you want. No. Don't grab the easy and let go of the hard when the hard is the truth and the easy is a lie. Instead, repent and believe the gospel. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do it again today. Repent and believe in God's rescue for you. Without Christ, if you're hearing this and you say, I don't have Jesus as a mediator, you can today. And I would love to talk with you more and pray with you about that. As I pray, our worship team is going to come back up and lead us in one final song. And as we sing, feel free to sing along. Uh, The song we'll be singing is, He Will Hold Me Fast. And it has that idea of, if you are in Christ, He has got you. He will rescue you. He has not forsaken you. But if you don't have that hope, if you don't have Christ as your solid rock, cry out to him today. Repent of your sin. Turn to him by faith. And if you need help in that, I'll be standing right here. Come down as we sing and talk with me and we'll, we'll pray together and we'll talk more. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the rescuer, Jesus. We thank you that It's not because we have shown ourselves to be perfect or even good enough. Lord, it's it's because of your preeminence. It's because of your sovereign choice. It's because of the gift of salvation to all those who believe. And so, Lord, our hearts as your people are broken over the sin that we see around us, the lies that our culture is buying into. Lord, help us not to buy into those lies and help us to do as you've called us to do, to speak the truth to our neighbor in love. And Lord, if we don't know you, God, I pray that you would come and seek and save us. That you would show us that it is not our good deeds that save us. It is your love. It is your mercy and grace. It is your sacrificial death on the cross divine resurrection and eternal intercession on behalf of your people lord that's why we can sing he will hold me fast so lord as we sing remind us of the beautiful truths of sound doctrine help us to cling to them to build our lives around them that you might be glorified in all things in christ's name we pray amen